We're going to come now to a time in our service. We're going to look at a passage from God's word. We're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 28, beginning at verse 2. If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 306. And when you found that, would you stand together with me and I'll read our passage for today. This is a sad day, and it's in a way we are concluding this series after God's own heart today. And uh, I always grieve a little bit when I put away my commentaries for a series and start a new one, but it's exciting too. So let's uh, conclude this uh, exploration of the life of David today here. First Chronicles 28, we're going to start at verse 2. David has gathered all the uh, elders and the officials of Israel and all the people together, and his sons and family, and everyone's together. Read this, verse 2. King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. For the footstool of our God, I made plans to build it. But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. If the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me for my whole family to be king over Israel forever, he chose Judah as leader and from the house of Judah, he chose my family, and from my father's sons, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Solomon, your son, is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he is unswerving and carrying out my commands and laws as is being done at this time. So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel and of the assembly of the Lord and the hearing of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father. Serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. Now in the remaining verses of this passage, or this chapter, David kind of lays out, okay, this is the plan. This is what I put together for you to build the temple. This is what it's supposed to look like. And then into chapter 29, he starts to call the people and says, I need you to come around my son. I need you to help him and support him. He's new. He doesn't know what he's doing. And this work is huge to build this temple. It's going to need all of you, all hands on deck here. And there's this incredible offering that takes place where all the leaders give in these incredible ways to support the work of this temple so it can be built, which brings about a huge celebration for all of them. In chapter 29, now in verse 10, we read this. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord God of Israel. Our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt, to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give thanks. We give you thanks and praise your glorious name Verse 14, but who am I 
And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Oh, Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand and it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the hearts and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with an honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord God of our father Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever. Keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. And then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and the king. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time and his word, and then we'll dig in here. <clears throat> Spirit of God, we come to you now and ask you to open up our minds, open up our hearts and ears to hear, to understand, to receive what it is you want to say to us through this passage today. I believe that this word that you have written is a living word. It, it, it accomplishes things. It's not just some ancient historical document. It is a living word that speaks your words to us. And I'm praying that as we dig into this today, that you would just do and accomplish whatever it is that you want to do in us today. I believe every person here today, you've drawn personally by your spirit because you wanted to accomplish something through this word in their lives. And I pray you do it. You say in your word that whenever you send out your word, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that work in each one of us. And now, as I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. In Flanders' fields, the poppies grow. Between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset, Low loved and were loved. Now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep. Though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. Something that's familiar to many of us here. If you grew up in Canada or if you've lived here for any length of time and you have kids in school... You have undoubtedly heard this poem written by Canadian Lieutenant Colonel John McRae during World War I. And along with just being a beautiful tribute to the men and women who fought and died in order to secure our freedom as a country, one of the things that's always stood out to me about McRae's poem here is that third stanza in particular, where he includes this, this charge. It's a charge from a, a generation past to the generation that follows, to, to take up the torch, to carry on the fight with all the same uh, passion, with all the same heart and determination that they had once given. Even going so far as to suggest we won't be able to, to rest in our graves 
if you just if you if this faith that we're putting in you is left disappointed well as i said we are concluding this series after god's own heart today it it ends today we're even looking at the life of david recorded through the old testament books of first and second samuel and while i'm fully aware that chronicles is not samuel uh, we're simply going to end here because this narrator gives us a, a picture gives us a perspective on the end of david's life and when he's handing over the kingdom now to his son solomon that second samuel just doesn't give us so that's why we're going to end here today and i think this will be a, a great place for us to end and although the circumstances are not the same in our passage today i think the sense behind david's charge that he gives to the leaders of israel who are going to continue to lead after him as well as his son solomon who's going to take on the the reign as the next king it's almost identical this charge to that third stanza of mccray's poem the sense being that now that david is nearing the end of his race this man after god's own heart wants to to ensure that those who follow after him maintain the same wholehearted devotion to god that he had in order to know continued blessing of living in the promised land that god had provided for them which i mean given all that we've learn about david over the course of his life if you're like me that sounds kind of hypocritical right i mean follow god with wholehearted devotion like i did well, kind of a lot of places didn't seem like it was very wholehearted uh david but either way this is what this is david's charge and i think the reason he can say it is because of what we've been saying throughout this series being after god's own heart what is it it's it's much less to do with something like trying to live perfect lives this like sinless perfection that's not what being after god's own heart means to be after god's own heart means consistently orienting our hearts or reorienting our hearts in the direction of consistently towards god that's what it means to be after god's own heart and that's one of the key reasons i wanted us to go through this series at all so that as we take this unfiltered look at the life of david the one the bible itself refers to as a man after god's own heart we might have our own picture our own idea of what that looks like greatly expanded as we see what it looks like in in david's life with, with all of its uh, successes and all of its failures so that as we have that picture expanded we ourselves might be able to look at our own lives and say maybe there's hope for me maybe uh, maybe i could be known that way too and i believe you absolutely can and so as david hands over the keys as it were to solomon who god had chosen to rule after david as well as build the house for god's name that david had been forbidden from building what we see are three aspects of what is needed to maintain this wholehearted devotion towards the faithful promise keeping god of the bible this three aspects that all need to work together in order for wholehearted devotion to happen which is also how we're going to break up our passage today as we look at it. So I want to show you these three aspects. We're going to talk about personal devotion for wholehearted faith, community support for wholehearted faith, and then finally, the divine gift of wholehearted faith. Personal devotion, community support, divine gift of wholehearted faith. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage so we can just follow along together with me? First Chronicles 28, starting at verse 2. Follow along with me as we learn about what it means to be after God's own heart ourselves, as well as to pass on a legacy of faithfulness to those who follow after us. 
Okay, so let's look first of all at personal devotion for wholehearted faith. Personal devotion for wholehearted faith. And I want to look at this first because whenever we've talked about what it looks like to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, keep our, our hearts and our minds oriented towards God, I think we spend a good deal of time talking about the way God gives us these incredible supports, gives us a community around us that helps support our being after God's own heart. He, he supports us, gives us the ability by His Spirit dwelling within us. All these things are, are important, but again, we're going to talk about that as we go through this passage as well. And yet, I, I never want us to focus on those other aspects of what it means to have wholehearted faith to the exclusion of the essential need for personal devotion, for personal responsibility in that endeavor as well. That's needed too. And where you see this aspect included in David's charge here is in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 28. Look with me there. Here, after establishing Solomon as God's choice to rule after David, build God's house, which includes God's own char charge to Solomon to hold unswervingly to his commands and laws, David gives this personal charge now, both to the people in general, as well as to his son Solomon in particular. He says, verse 8, So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel, and in the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father. Serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. So there's a a general charge to the people of all, all the leaders of Israel. We'll, we'll come back to that. That's in verse 8. But what I want to focus on here for a moment is this specific charge to Solomon in verse 9, where, where David calls him, you saw, to both wholehearted devotion along with a willing mind. Both of those things, wholehearted devotion and a willing mind, which I think is really significant because it shows that this wholehearted devotion that David is speaking of here is so much more than just like begrudging submission, just kind of like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Just checking the box of obedience. It's so much more than that. Wholehearted devotion is about a true willingness of the heart and mind that that to obey God that, that grows out of a gratefulness for all that God has done for him and for God's people. And what's more, as you read on in the second half of verse 9, you see David reminding his son too. He's saying, listen, as you're doing this, don't, don't mess around. Don't, don't try to play games with this. Don't be like fronting with people trying to like look like you're, you're doing it if you're not. Uh, even if you fool everybody else, God is not fooled, he says. He sees right down to the thoughts and motives behind your actions. So the integrity of your heart here is so important. The willingness of your mind. What, what David is ultimately saying to Solomon as he takes leadership over Israel is, listen, your personal, you, your wholehearted devotion to God, the integrity of your heart before God, it's a necessary part of this whole thing. You, your efforts are part of this thing. They matter. Your personal devotion matters to you. It matters to the people you're leading, and it matters to God who searches every heart. So serve the, the God of your father with a wholehearted faith and with a willing mind. 
And I point all that out for the simple reason that sometimes it's been so long since we've heard anything about what God still requires of us in being after his own heart that we almost hear stuff like this and we almost feel offended. What? I'm supposed to do something here too? I thought one of the core elements of the gospel is salvation by grace alone, by faith alone. Now this is starting to sound like salvation by works. Is that what you're saying? No. No, that, that, that's not at all what's going on here. God is simply saying that the work that you do personally to keep your heart oriented towards him is an essential part of this three-part equation. Your, your personal efforts are part of this. You, you join God in doing this. Unless you think this is just some kind of Old Testament pre-Jesus understanding, New Testament's not going to help you out either. There's all kinds of places where New Testament authors, Jesus himself, are going to say obedience to Christ is the evidence of your love for him, is the evidence of your devotion to him. What are we, what are we supposed to do with this? How do, how do we understand this? Well, I think the simplest way to understand how our own efforts play into being after God's own heart is in learning the difference between two key theological concepts, justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification, two $10 theological words that we're going to talk about here for a second. But I think you need to understand these because it helps us understand how do our own efforts play into this and how do they not. Justification, first of all, is a legal definition. This is a, a legal declaration of not guilty, of, of innocence, spoken over someone before a holy God. To be justified means not guilty. It means you are fully pardoned. Everything is taken care of. It's, an enti it's entirely the work of God, and it's an act of grace that cannot be earned. You can't do anything to earn justification. God is the one who does all of it. Sanctification, however, is an ongoing process. Justification is a one-time thing. Sanctification, an ongoing process where you, you work out, what it, you work alongside the Holy Spirit in order to resist sin, resist temptation, to, to, to be able to grow in looking, spiritually speaking, more and more like Jesus. This is absolutely something that involves your effort and work. You work alongside the Holy Spirit. The only difference is, is that you, you, you're, you're not obeying God in order to earn that righteousness. That part is taken care of now. All you're doing here is, is you're, you're working alongside the Spirit. You're obeying God as an expression of your gratitude for a not guilty declaration spoken over you that we regularly prove day after day is not true by our actions and our thoughts. We are guilty. We, we should stand guilty before God, and yet here his declaration over us because of Jesus can now be not guilty. So we work alongside to try and line up those two pictures. What does a not guilty person live like? We're, we're trying to line up what that looks like and with our lives to live more and more like Jesus. Which means one of the really cool things about that is that the hope of the gospel the hope of the gospel for you and for me can be summarized exactly as Tim Keller puts it when he writes this. It's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance. You get the perfect score before you've even taken the test. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do we find this. Because he does the work for us. And now we simply obey out of a grateful thankfulness for that not guilty, not to earn it. So we shouldn't see this call to personal devotion and obedience uh, for Solomon or, or for any of us here today, for that matter, as something strange or, or foreign to God's grace. 
but as identical to, for instance, uh, the continued efforts required of a spouse. Uh, following your wedding day, you, you've got this established relation now, but you work. You work alongside with your spouse in order for that relationship to continue to grow. The relationship exists now, but now you're working together in order to deepen the relationship, to deepen the commitment and the love for each other so that your relationship can flourish more and more. Your wholehearted devotion to God expressed through things like daily time in his word, prayer, uh, giving, uh, submitting your will more and more to his. Those things don't create a man or woman after God's own heart. They're the grace-driven efforts of a man or woman who already is which means to see your effort, your, your own personal devotion as somehow unnecessary, that that's just the optional part of the equation, is really to, to presume upon the grace of God. And as we're going to see on here in our next point, it's also to presume upon the grace of others in your life as well. So that's personal devotion for a wholehearted faith. The next thing I want to look at with you is community support for a wholehearted faith. Community support for wholehearted faith. And whether we're talking about the prophet Samuel, who, who anointed David, who mentored him through his life, whether we're talking about uh, uh, the, the love and protection of David's closest friend, Jonathan, whether it was the, the loving redirection of David's wife, Abigail, or, or even the rebuke of the prophet Nathan, we've seen time and time again how essential support of others in David's life is to keeping his heart consistently oriented towards God. Yes, his own efforts were absolutely an essential part and needed, and yet were shown in no uncertain terms how inadequate they would have been on their own. Our personal devotion and efforts by themselves can never accomplish wholehearted devotion. We need the support of others around us, which is a theme replayed again and again in the Bible, beginning all the way back with Adam in the Garden of Eden. It is not good for us to be alone. We need others. Which is why I think along with personal devotion, we see David charging the community around Solomon both to faithful obedience as well as support of his son. You see the call for faithful obedience in verse 8. We already read it there. It's this conditional clause, which is common in the language of a covenant, where David charges the leaders and the officials to, to, have, to remain obedient to the commands of the Lord. Remain obedient to the commands of the Lord so that you may maintain possession of the promised land and that you may be able to hand it over at some day to future generations. The big idea there is that in order to have a wholehearted community around Solomon that can guide and support him in his wholehearted devotion, the community actually needs to be involved in their own personal devotion to God themselves. You can't just have a random group of people around you. You need people who have the same trajectory as you coming around you in order to support that, in order for the community to actually be effective. So if, if you're hoping to have a wholehearted faith, if you're hoping to be known as a man or woman after God's own heart yourself, what this is showing you is that you, you, don't, you don't just need to get yourself around positive people, supportive people, be like, yeah, yeah that's good. You, you don't even just need to get yourself in any church in particular, No. What you need, actually, is to get yourself into a community, even if that's only like one or two other people, who are truly serious about their own pursuit of God. Serious about their own personal devotion to Him. Otherwise, the effectiveness of the community support be drastically reduced, if not nullified altogether. You need a community that's headed in the same direction as you, that, that's going to call you and be like to the same standard that you're all facing towards. 
this charge that we see David delivering to the officials and the leadership of Israel that are going to lead alongside his son. That's a charge that's been formed, that's been forged in a, in a lifetime of experience for David. David knows that the only reason he's even standing here right now to pass on a kingdom is because of the people that came around him and supported him through the course of his life. And not just, not just a community of positive, supportive people, godly, faithful, sold-out community of people who would come around him and help him, who would redirect him when he needed to be redirected, who would say the hard things to him, be willing to tell him what he needed to hear but what he didn't want to hear. Why? Because they're all headed towards the same direction so they could truly help. They could truly be a, a community of support that came around him. And I'll tell you, it's, it's not everything, but it's one of the biggest reasons, for instance, that I would advise someone seeking to be after God's own heart themselves not to enter into a serious dating relationship. Certainly not into marriage with someone that doesn't share the same pursuit of wholehearted devotion that you are. Why? Because at best, you're entering into a community that's not going to support your wholehearted devotion. And at worst, it's going to be drastically reduced or nullified altogether. You're not going to have the support of wholehearted devotion from someone who doesn't also have wholehearted devotion. They may respect it, they may support it, but they will not actually lead you and redirect you towards that end if they don't share the same pursuit of wholehearted devotion themselves. Where you see David's call to community support now is actually in the section that we didn't read in our passage. It's that kind of middle section in between where David's talking about the plans for the temple. Look at chapter 29 and verse 1 there. King says here that the King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young, inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. He's saying he's going to need your help. He's going to need your support to come around him. And after laying out his own costly worship in the next verses, he talks about all that he's offering to help support his son. He calls out to the rest of the whole assembly there. Look at verse 5, second half of verse 5. He says, now, who is willing to consecrate himself to the Lord today? Basically, he's saying, who's with me? Who's going to come alongside me and, and support with costly worship my son in order that this amazing, incredible task of building the house for God's name can be accomplished? And as you read on, you see this incredible, really, really beautiful scene where the leaders and officials gladly, sacrificially offering what they have into the treasury, which is, it's interesting, it's their own wholehearted faith that causes them to do that, but that in turn deepens the faith and the wholehearted worship of the hearts of the whole nation around them. As they see the leaders giving, they're like, yeah, and they, they're joining in. Everyone's giving to this huge offering in order to see the temple completed. Look at verse 9 of chapter 29. It says, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders. For they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly, which is then what this very thing that inspires David's epic kind of psalm-like prayer that then follows in the next verses here. <clears throat> and I think a big part of this charge from David to the community that he was asking to support his son was also forged in a life of experience. It was forged out of his lifetime of, of struggle and difficulty. I think, for example, I think David's experience with Naboth had a profound effect on how he, re he related to the understanding of how strong a pull possessions can be in our lives. How hard it is to just 
take our hands off and open up our hands with the things God has given us and, and offer them back to him. How easy it is to look to our wealth and possessions for uh, a security, for, for a salvation that is only found in the giver of those things. And so David calls the community of leaders and officials to follow him in an act of wholehearted faith and sacrificially surrendering a portion of their wealth and of their possessions as an expression of what they truly valued most. Do you want to see this house for God's name completed? Do you want to support this work that God has called my son to offer as you see fit to do that? But it would also deepen their own wholehearted devotion as they did it, as they released their hands from things and were willing to give towards this in support. And as a community of worshipers that gathers here Sunday after Sunday, these two aspects of faithfulness and of support, our wholehearted devotion to God will also be grown, will also be deepened as we graciously, lovingly hold one another accountable to following God's good commands and as we offer back to God what is ultimately his anyway as an expression of what we truly value in order to support the, the mission and the call on God for his church. If you're a member here at this church, these are two things that we have covenanted to do with each other, to lovingly support one another and come alongside one another, that all of our wholehearted devotion to look more like Jesus could happen. And by God's grace, that's what we've been doing. And I'm so grateful for that. So we've talked about personal devotion for wholehearted faith, and now community support for wholehearted faith. I think you can see how both of those things are necessary. And how presumptuous it would be to presume upon the support of the community to maintain wholehearted devotion without contributing our own efforts for personal devotion to the equation. But now the last aspect, part three of the equation, that what I want to look at together with you is the divine gift of wholehearted faith. The divine gift of wholehearted faith. And I mention this lastly, not at all because it's the least important aspect of maintaining wholehearted faith. No, in fact... The divine gift of faith is the ultimate initiator as well as the primary sustainer of our wholehearted faith to begin with. Now I mention this lastly because of all the places that we could presume upon the grace of another to maintain a wholehearted faith while phoning it in ourselves, this would be it. This would be where we would do that. We would just try to rely 100% on God's work. Yeah, you, you do all the work. Well, I'm just going to kick back and, and just let you do everything. This is the place where we're most likely to do this and, and, and ignore our own personal devotion that's necessary to the equation. Like, for instance, I'm almost certain the reason the Apostle Paul asks the rhetorical question in Romans 6, where basically they were saying, like, shouldn't we just continue in sin and sin all we can now that Jesus has saved us to show how great God's grace is? I'm sure he wasn't asking that question just to round off all the corners. He was asking that question rhetorically because he heard people talking that way. He won't just say, no, guys, that's not it. Your personal devotion is part of it. Your efforts are part of it. So yes, God's grace is sufficient to cover all our sins, past, present, present, and future. That doesn't mean for a second that we can just kick back and relax as it relates to our own personal devotion to fighting of sin. But where you see this divine gift of wholehearted faith clearly in our passage is in two places, actually. First of all, back in chapter 28, where in the midst of talking about how God chose David from among his brothers to be king over Israel. David now says this in verse 6. Look with me there. David says, he said to me, this is God spoke to him and said, Solomon, your son, is the one 
who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. This is why I spoke of the divine gift of faith earlier as the ultimate initiator of wholehearted faith to begin with, because you see, without a word spoken about Solomon's uh, worthiness, about his, his earning, about his suitability be, to be king, even his desiring to be a child of God, to have God as his father, God says, I'm the initiator. I am the initiator of this relationship between Solomon and myself. I chose him to rule. I chose him to be the one who will build this temple. I chose him to be my son and me to be his father, which means David clearly understood the faith that Solomon had to express wholehearted devotion willingly in his mind uh, that, that was all towards God as well as his appointment as king, as well as his uh, uh, desire to be the, the one who built the temple for God. All these things were as a result of the electing grace of God. God chose. He was the one that chose that he would have faith. He was the one that chose he would rule and be the one to build the temple. It's exactly as the Apostle Paul wrote later on in Ephesians chapter 2, in his letter to the Ephesian church there saying, uh, in verses 8 through 10, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And even in that verse, you see the, the mingling of these three aspects, right? Yes, God created these works, but he created them for us to do them. All playing together in this cool mix of things. The second place you see the divine gift of wholehearted faith is on the chapter 29 now, in verses 18 and 19. Look with me there. Uh, as a part of David's prayer of gratitude for this incredible offering and for the building of the temple, David prays this. He says, O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever. Keep their hearts loyal to you. And my son Solomon, give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep the commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build this palatial structure for which I have provided. This is why I also spoke of the divine gift of faith earlier as the primary sustainer of wholehearted faith. Because along with creating and initiating wholehearted faith, what's clear is that David also understands God to be the primary source of sustaining that faith throughout our lives as well. He's saying, God, that faith you created, now sustain it. Keep it going. Keep their hearts loyal to you. Keep my son following after you. And what's incredible about that? And, and what should bring about and inspire that very same extravagant worship and praise in each one of our hearts as well is if God has initiated that faith in you. It should bring about this exact same joyous celebration that we see David uh, praising God for here and all the people praising God for that, that apart from any earning, any effort, any worthiness on your part, again, this is, Paul says it's God's gift God in his mercy and love looked down on you and chose you in Christ to be his son or daughter. He chose you to be his son or daughter, rescuing you, from, rescuing you from slavery to sin, slavery to death, granting you full rights and privileges of an adopted child. That should inspire extravagant worship from us. But then, even on top of that, far beyond our abilities to maintain that faith over time, God promises to continually sustain it himself to work alongside our own feeble efforts 
so that our wholehearted devotion may continue to be deepened and grown throughout our lives. Or as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere in Philippians 1.6, a verse many of you will know as well, he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We hear that. We can be confident of this. We can rest safely in this truth, that knowing that while wholehearted devotion requires personal devotion on our part, it is not dependent upon us. If you've spent any time in your life trying to follow Jesus perfect, perfectly for any length of time, you'll know that that's very, very, very good news. In his commentary on this passage, pastor and author D.A. Carson writes this, The golden age of David has no more permanence than any other. And that age, like every age, finds its hope only in David's never-failing Lord. That's where the hope is truly found. And as we followed the life of this man after God's own heart over these past few months, I pray that, first of all, just as I said from the beginning of this series, that your understanding of what it means, what it looks like to be after God's own heart, to be a man and woman after God's own heart, has been greatly expanded, widened in, in, in the most amazing of ways. As we've looked at this unfiltered life of a man that the Bible describes as such, for all of his many successes and victories, we also saw that David was a flawed man, failed God in significant ways that brought about devastation for him as well as for the entire nation. And yet despite his failings, despite his imperfections, David still, even into the New Testament, is still referred to as a man after God's own heart. And the hope is that in seeing that, in, in sitting in that reality over these, this past extended time together, that we might come to know and truly believe that whatever failures, whatever imperfections we may have in our past, however far off course you may have wandered in your life, that does not disqualify you from returning. It does not disqualify you from reorienting your heart back towards God, seeking Him and living a life where you can still come to be known over the course of your life in just the same way as David was, as a man and woman after God's own heart. I pray that you've come to truly know and believe that, whatever is a part of your past, that you would really believe that and know that that could be true of you. But as D.A. Carson rightly just said, my prayer for each of us at the end of this series is also not that we would have some kind of special shelf of, of honor to put David on. We would say, man, look at, look at how amazing David is. As incredible, honestly, a person in history as he was, the goal is not at all that we would have a special honor and reverence for David, but that our hope, our trust, our reliance on the God whom David's heart was after, that that might be deepened, might be strengthened and grown as well as a result of this time spent together. The God that David's heart was after, that he's the one who is our hope. That as you've watched this never-failing Lord call David, protect him, guide him, sustain him, forgive him throughout his entire life, from the day that he chose him from a little shepherd boy out in the field till the end of his life here as Israel's greatest king, through every stage of his life, success, failure, inadequacy, wanderings, whatever it is, God has continued to be faithful to carry him through to the end. And I pray that as we've looked at that, as we've sat in this 
story of God's faithfulness to him. But it would strengthen your own faith as well. All the more to believe that he truly can and will be faithful to complete the good work that he began in you. Do you know it? Do you believe it? This is just one epic example. The Bible is full of them. I pray that our lives are full of them and are examples as well. Not of our incredible, not of our ability to follow God so well, but of God's incredible ability to take fallen, messed up, screwed up people and make trophies of his grace. As we can be known as men and women after his own. Amen.